welcome back. It's good to be here with you again. It's been a, a lot longer than I was hoping to finish up this to this uh, series of uh, videos on the question of God. Uh, and in fact, if you're hearing this, uh, because I don't separate out my uh, my uh, podcast channels, I run both this podcast and the, the Pilgrim Faith podcast, uh, you might be expecting that you're listening to a Pilgrim Faith episode, but uh, you might just be discovering, because this is how rarely I make one of these at this point, <laughs> you might just be discovering that there's this other podcast called A Plausible Faith, and that's, that's what's going on here. And we're in the middle in this particular discussion of looking at the God question in terms of three layers that I've tried to establish. That is to say, three things, three types of things that can get in the way or prevent uh, or, or be, be thought to prevent belief in God. And so what I did first was look at what I called sort of the phenomenological layer. What are those things that make it hard to believe in God at a kind of lived experience level, if you might say. Um, and then next we looked at kind of that, what, what I termed the moral or aesthetic layer. What are those kind of moral sensibilities or uh, aesthetic revulsions that some modern people experience uh, when considering the question of God? But of course, the, the most natural place to think about the question of God and the, and the place that we, we tend to start with, uh, you know, because I do what I do, I'm ending with it, <laughs> is the question of uh, the truth of God's existence, the mental layer, the argumentative layer, the philosophical layer, the discursive layer, that layer in which we're just trying to figure out, is this true or not, uh, with those tools through which we discover the truth. And so in today's video, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and look at the, the question of God relative to that layer, which will complete at least, you know, this discussion of God. I'll have more videos on this in the future. Incidentally, what I'm going to try to, what I'm going to try to do, I've been writing these out, which is why they, they tend to take so long to produce. What I'll try to do in the future is uh, do them based on an outline, and then uh, I think I'll be able to make more of these. Uh, that's, that's my new strategy. We'll, we'll, see, how it, we'll see how it goes. Uh, in any case, what I'm going to do today uh, is talk about the question of God in two ways. So we're looking at kind of the truth layer, the, the layer that's pinging the mind of man that is trying to know through reason. Uh, we're going to look at that in two ways. First, we, we're going to ask what, we'll talk, what we're talking about when we talk about God, to put it in a Rob Bell terminology, though, <laughs> oh, Lord, help us, not, not Rob Bell content. <laughs> uh, what are we talking about when we talk about God? What does it mean when we say the existence of God? Does God exist? What does that word God mean? And it's also worth asking, actually, what the word existence means. What does it mean to say God? What does it mean to say exists? And therefore, what does it mean to say God exists? Uh, so that's kind of one cluster of things we want to look at. And then the second is, what does it mean to be persuaded of the existence of God? So that's the cluster of questions, God and his existence. But then what does it mean to be persuaded uh, on over here about this stuff over here? So that'll, that'll sort of shape the two halves of this video, if you will. Uh, so what are we really asking about when we ask about the existence of God? And what does it mean to be persuaded of the theist answer to that question or the question of the existence of God? So let's take those in order. So first, the meaning of God. It's interesting to note that the atheist and the Christian both often imagine God, uh, if we can put it that way, imagine God in the same way as the, as the final step, uh, as it were, in an explanatory chain. The sort of uh, cosmic pool stick that struck all the orbs of the universe and their inhabitants into existence. Um, if you believe in God, then you have something like an intelligent designer. 
If you don't, somehow the cosmic pool stick just doesn't require the properties we ascribe to God. In either case, God basically takes on the role that the modern sort of quantum field takes in physics, uh, that largest explanation of things on which all else depends. Uh, the difference between the atheist and the Christian then is not necessarily the mental image of the universe as such, but whether or not the latter requires just one more member to make sense of everything. Uh, for most atheists, you might say Occam's razor would have a stop at the quantum field, and since there is empirical evidence for the quantum field and none for God, so the argument goes, we have no reason to go beyond this limit for Occam's razor. For the theist, there are features of the quantum field, a sort of materialist logos, and the, and, and the emergent known universe, that is, there's features of the quantum field or the known universe that require uh, to be possible a supervening mind. Another way of saying it is that God, on this way of framing the question, is a hypothesis for which there either is or is not evidence. Uh, so not all things are evidence, actually, of intelligent design in, in a lot of intelligent design discourse. Only some things are irreducibly complex things. Uh, one decides on the existence of God, then, in this kind of discourse, very much the way one postulates a scientific law or theory. And as we'll see, while there, there are similar mental motions within, within classical arguments about God, they are differently accented precisely because God is not primarily approached as an explainer of things, uh, but rather as the primal precondition of explainability whatsoever. If you're thinking of God and you're thinking of the world, so here's God and here's the world, as some place in which he might or that might or might not contain him or relative to which he might or might not exist, your imagination is misframing the role of God. Uh, to speak of God in the classical sense is to speak of the unnameable source of any possible being and knowing and who has none of the limits of, fit, of, of finite and creaturely uh, experience. On this view, the entire universe and all of history within it is no more a proof of God's existence than a simple grain of sand. Moreover, a simple grain of sand on the classical view is just as demonstrative a reason to ascribe existence to God as the whole universe and all it contains. And why is that? Because once you grasp the role that God is taking in the classic kind of metaphysical picture, you'll see that it becomes very difficult to even imagine any contingent thing, to imagine anything that isn't obviously and necessarily self-existent as ultimately accounting for anything. And neither the quantum field and all it contains uh, or, or the single grain of sand are seemingly necessary in that way, that way that our mind feels the need to find, uh, our, our mind feels the need to arrive at, what reason feels the need to arrive at, you might say. Uh, that is to say we can, but, but, but to say, you know, that's not true of the quantum field or the single grain of sand is simply really to say that we can coherently imagine their non-being. Uh, we cannot, however, coherently imagine either the possibility or the actuality of non-existence as such, kind of all the way down in being. 
something, <laughs> given there's something that exists, something is possessed of what we might call necessary existence in, in some way. That's a kind of classical phrase. Perhaps it could be parsed out differently than that, but you can see where the, 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 the mental motion is going, necessary existence. That against which there is no contrast of non-being. Whereas in something like the quantum field, there, there irreducibly remains the possibility of the contrary, the rational possibility of the contrary. I want to spill this out a little bit further in a bit, but for now it's worth framing it one more way so that we can just make sure we're tracking, because sometimes thinking of this issue sort of metaphysically rather than scientifically uh, in the order of, of final and formal causality rather than efficient causality. Uh, it's helpful to kind of repeat things in different ways just so we make sure that we're tracking. Here's one way of putting it. If one imagines that the, that, that the evolution debate, for instance, has any purchase philosophically on whether or not God exists, if your thought about whether evolution is true or not is even playing a role in the question of whether or not God exists, then one does not understand the role that God plays in the classical theistic picture. And I think that could tell you just how far the discourse has fallen, that we even associate evolutionary discourse with the question of God on any classical hypothesis. And that I'm not in the name of defending any particular evolutionary view. It's just helpful to point that out so that we can see how far afield, in a sense, contemporary discourse about God is from, from more traditional discourse. So, so, so don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say evolution is true. I'm rather just saying it is irrelevant to the God question precisely because God is not a hypothesis of how the world looks the way it does, or at least he need not be. There is no tension between God's supervening agency and what the old tradition calls secondary causes, you know, the way things might have played out at, a, at an imminent creation level. One shouldn't think then of divine acts and creaturely acts as in some sort of zero-sum game of mutual activity, drawing from a common causal reservoir, as, uh, as Michael Horton once put it, uh, drawing from a common causal reservoir such that if creation explains something 50%, then God can only play the job of accounting for the other 50. Uh, rather, like the author of a story, the whole universe is of God's mind, necessarily. But that universe that is of God's mind is a universe that has its own intrinsic motions, just as the characters in a story have their own intrinsic motions, laws, and free agencies considered imminently. There's more to say here, but to suffice it to make the point for present that God doesn't find his place in the universe where our explanations fail. Uh, God of the gaps, if you will. Rather, his chief explanatory place is compre absolutely comprehensive and therefore unlike the kind of empirical explanations that we require in the sciences. When this sinks in, the common atheist barb of the Christian supposed need for a sky daddy, common internet insult these days, <laughs> uh, you can see the vacuousness of it, as well as the common argument, you know, uh, you know, we're athe you're atheist with every God except for one. We're just asking you to give up the other one, which is a little bit like saying, uh, you know, uh, all, half of the airplane's engines have blown up uh, uh, is just the same as saying all the engines' airplanes have blown up. That's not quite the way that works for the people still in the sky. It's also worth mentioning that the the gods in a lot of ancient discourse are more like big people, uh, 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 as they're as much at least like big people as they are like little gods. Uh, and in fact, even in, in Greek philosophical discourse, you begin to see Zeus take on both the kind of 
imminent historical character Zeus, who's one of many and represents various forces. And then there's Zeus, the kind of cosmic unitary principle. Uh, and so there's a, there's a bit of ignorance, I think, of that kind of argument, and it, it misframes the entire question. So, so when we talk about God, we're not talking then about an object among other objects that may or may not account for them. We're talking not about what stands behind our particular actuality, at least not immediately talking about that, but what necessarily stands behind any possibility, whether actualized or not. And it is crucial to point out that something, for lack of a better word, must take this place. Uh, this is a meaningful question, whether or not the universe was made in six days or over billions of years, or whether intelligent design arguments or whether they don't work. There's much more to be said, of course. Uh, Aquinas' treatment of divine existence, for instance, can't be divorced from his treatment of other divine attributes. Nevertheless, we'll, we'll keep within our limited frame here by clarifying then next simply what it means to say God exists. And I think what we'll see is the question, you know, the definition of God and the definition of existence wound up being a little mutually implicated in one another. So what does it mean to ask the question uh, of whether or not God exists? For some, the answer appears to be obvious. To ask if God exists is to ask if he is real, or he has being, or is a difference-making agent in the world, etc. And certainly, any positing of God's existence must include these things in some way. However, this is a somewhat misleading way to frame the question. To query concerning the existence of God is not quite the same thing as asking about the existence of, say, Bigfoot or one's Aunt Esther. And why is that? Because in those cases, we can distinguish the essence or the whatness of the things under consideration and their existence, the that of them, that they exist at all, that they're this particular thing. That is to say, both Bigfoot and one's ant are both the kinds of things that might or might not exist. Said differently, a world with their presence is just as coherent, from our perspective at least, as a world with their absence. That is not the case with God. As noted previously, to speak about God is not simply to speak about the final explainer of things, but rather that in light of which both things and their explanations are even imaginable. And fortunately, it doesn't take a great deal of thought to see that something, again, as we just noted, must play this role. For almost everything we posit before our imagination, we can also imagine its negation. That is to say, we can coherently imagine its non-existence, as, for instance, in the case of our good friend Sasquatch. But there's necessarily something, again, for lack of a better word, about which we cannot coherently imagine its non-existence. And that is, you know, some might say that's being or existence as such, in contrast to which there's no nothing. Uh, we could coherently scissor away from our mental universe the world of humans. The universe could being could be without humans being, or animals, or planets, or even galaxies, and even our whole cosmos. But we cannot finally negate away the final fact of facticity itself, the ontological priority of being to non-being. Something, in short, being or existence itself possesses, and again, here's that old language again, necessary existence. We cannot coherently imagine its non-existence, for that would entail the non-existence of existence as such. In one sense, as, 
as likewise noted earlier, this is somewhat tacitly admitted by all, but existence itself is then simply conflated with something that isn't God. So the, the quantum field again takes uh, claims to possess that could be claimed to possess the character of necessary existence. But, and, and now I think we see more clear, clearly why the quantum field is not a good candidate for necessary existence because we can coherently imagine the non-existence of the quantum field uh, or a radically different quantum field playing the same role in some way. A quantum field that produced this range of particles rather than that range of particles and so on. And that's not so with existence itself. In the classical view, God is subsistent being himself. The act of existence in its fullness and plenitude, the act of existence in which all creatures participate in a, light, a finite uh, a creaturely way, a limited way. But, but there's more to this. There's a, just let's plug down, let's pull down, you know, God existence. What, what, let's pull down a little bit more into what we mean by existence. And what's really crucial is uh, to, to, to see the insight uh, that existence is an act. Existence is, 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 is verbal in some way. It is to be, is, is a verb. <laughs> it's an act. There's an act of existence. Our language preserves this in the verbal and participial modes of to be and being, respectively. Uh, and, and likewise, the etymology of the term exist uh, means something like just to stand out. And you might, you, know, you might think stand out from what? And one way of thinking about it is existence. To exist is to stand above, to say that you exist, is to say that you stand out above the abyss of nothing. Uh, to exist is precisely to actively stand out in the community of beings, uh, as, as Norris Clark might put it. And it is only by means of this act of existing, this act of standing out, that anything else is possible. Uh, for this reason, uh, Aquinas will call existence the perfection of perfections, because it is metaphysically and logically prior to all other perfections. You have to stand out, you have to, to be, to be Joe. You have to, to be a computer, to be a computer. That's probably not a great analogy, but whatever. Uh, 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 but existence is the perfection of perfections, that without which any other perfection is not achievable or thinkable. And yet, likewise for Aquinas, the act of existence possessed by each creature is a gift or a, a donation of God's own act of living, but in a creaturely mode. That is to say, while each finite creature in the whole of really existing things possesses an act of existence, uh, this act, uh, you might say the event of their being, is not something they give to themselves, but rather something that is given to them, uh, and nevertheless in which they actively participate as gift given. And it is precisely here that we see how this chain of donated life cannot be endlessly deferred. Maybe another way of saying this is that livingness itself must simply be somewhere. <laughs> uh, and yet here we could run into a mistake, and I think this is an extremely important and I think brings it all the way down to the ground. In our attempt to understand the meaning of existence, we might be tempted to think of God's fullness of existence as best seen at the very at the end of a very long series of negations. That is, once you kind of cut away all creaturely imperfections, you're left with existence itself. And this we call God, as the good doctor says. So uh, existence just becomes this kind of abstract, uh, you, you know, this kind, this kind of, you know, 
you know, sort of as 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 nebulous as the quantum field in some way, and we just sort of we just sort of say everything is contained in it or something like that. But there's a better way to think of it, and I think it's one of the chief insights of Thomas Aquinas. Here I'm mediating him through the the aforementioned Norris Clark. Rather than defining God as the negation of creation, we should rather define creation as the negation of God's full act of existence. That is to say, all creatures are limited participations in the fullness of God's singular, singularly, singular and necessary act of existence, which, which act just is God considered in a, in a certain way. Here's another way to think about it. What we are, our essence, a human being Joe or whatever, is a limitation of the fullness of existence. So in the case of all real things, the fullness of existence is manifested just and only this far and no further. Uh, uh, the essence, the essence of each thing sort of determines, you might say, the boundaries within which the fullness of existence, the full range of what might be, is manifested in just this way. So what does it mean to be a human? It means to have an active existence which manifests just, just to this limit and no further in its potential. So while there is some truth in portraying our vision of God as what remains after we cut away creaturely limitations, what we are left with is not an abstraction, but rather it's opposite. Lewis is very good on this as well. God is the most substantial and concrete, which is just to say the most living thing. God cannot change because he is purely actual, in act, fully living and realized without limits. It is rather we who are an abstraction of God, a copy of his perfections, you might say. Uh, sorry, my, my screen got away from me. A, a copy of his perfections in a finite hue, suspended in his free act of, of self-donation. And there is mystery here, of course, to, to say that our act of existence is a finite participation in the full, fullness of God's act of existence is not to clarify precisely how God is related to the world of limitation in precise metaphysical terms. Uh, but you might say that this is the, the range between which Christians operate. Unlike the Gnostic tradition, Christians never thought that such finite participation was intrinsically corrupted. So to not be God is not automatically to be corrupted. And unlike the pantheists, the classical tradition has also worked hard to avoid conflating the being of God with the being of creation. And so to imagine God's self-donation should not be to imagine sort of God carving himself up to pieces to dole out into finite forms. Rather, uh, maybe a better analogy is that we're suspended in God's own life the way that analogously speaking, our own thoughts are suspended in our life suspended such a way that if we disappear, they disappear too. That level of dependence, but you know, writ large and writ cosmic. Uh, they are free self-creations in one sense, our thoughts, but they are also other than us in this, in this other sense, we might say. That's only an analogy, and we could, we could break that apart as well, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to the side for the moment. It's crucial to note, of course, that this description of God using only the, the kind of tools of philosophical analysis is less rich than the descriptions of God that we find in the Bible. Humans have always had access to the truths about God that, that did not depend upon making precisely these kinds of distinctions in any formal way. Nevertheless, it's worth noting, I think, that, that something like 
these distinctions show up in a kind of analogous way or a pre-philosophical way within the very different cognitive environment that we find in the Bible. While you're not likely to find the distinction between essence and existence in the ancient Near East in any formulaic way, it is nevertheless interesting to think about the manner in which God portrays himself as the living one. God's own name, I am, would appear to highlight the intimate fusion of God's what, what he is, and his existence something that remains distinct for us as united in him. God is the one who just is. And it is for precisely this reason that in the temple, dead things cannot bear the presence of the Almighty. Not simply the immoral or the, or the liturgically or ritually impure, but anything, actually one of the definitions of something that makes it ritually impure is that anything that approximate deadness, blemish or defective skin, that sort of thing, or anything that involves a privation of the fullness of life. You might say something like a, a, a castration in some cases. Um, any of those things preclude people from access in the Old Testament to the temple. And of course, there was animal death in the, in the temple, uh, but precisely to substitute for the otherwise consuming effects of God's covenantal presence, uh, the, the effects that that would have had on the uh, not quite truly unblemished priests, uh, even though they're sort of liturgically unblemished. Um, it's also interesting to remember that God often reveals himself in the mode of a fire in a cloud. Uh, this fire could alternatively consume or consummate a creature in the Old Testament to be near God as either to be consumed by the fire or to be or to be made more fully living as when the face of Moses or the glorified body of our Lord takes on a, a new vibrancy of life. And indeed, it is not surprising that the ancients tended in their idolatry toward the worship of the sun. Not only does it have obvious cosmological priority, at least in a sort of phenomenological cosmology, but there is also something intriguing about the fire, at least the, the, the sense that the sun is this fire that sort of self-subsists. Uh, in our experience, fire is the most transient of things, the least stable of the elements, and yet also in some way, it's the most active of them, the most fully itself. Indeed, one might say that fire is a, a kind of very good phenomenological image of pure actuality. Uh, and yet precisely uh, in not consuming the bush, for instance, it's an interesting thing that happens with fire. Here's a fire that self-subsists and doesn't consume a bush. God communicates that his is the kind of activity in life that does not subsist on anything. That's kind of like the sun. It's kind of self-subsistent, purely actual fire, or at least the approximate of those formal images in maybe a phenomenological image in its associations. So God is that living one then whose life cannot be snuffed and in whom all else live. And precisely as life himself, the co covenantal presence of God consumes what is deadly and consummates what is, living, what is living. In short, there does appear to be some similar motion of the mind nascent in authoritative biblical metaphors and the, and the formal articulations of the meaning of existence in the language of philosophy. Minimally, they could be called different ways of approximating some singular truth relative to different circumstances and specific questions. Or better yet, we could just speak about a development of discourse. In any case, just as the ancient Hebrews uh, would not have thought of God's livingness as just a, a more intense form of human life, or of the great I am as suspended in some deeper form of amness, 
so should we not think of God's active existence as just a more intense form of standing out from the abyss of nothing among a bunch of others who possess the active existence. Rather, God is the one whose essence properly is his active existence. The difference between God and ourselves is precisely that our standing out above the abyss of nothing is precisely over against an abyss of nothing. We are contrasted to nothing. God's standing out, on the other hand, is not over against anything. He just is his own act of being fully alive, transcending both existence and non-existence as we experience them. Or more to the point, God's act of being alive is of necessity metaphysically prior to any act of existence that does not possess the fullness of existence, that is to say, to all limited creatures. So, <laughs> all right, so far so good. There are objections to this that I might take up in future videos, and which I've addressed in my series on the question of God at the at Modern Reformation. You can find it at the blog there. But for now, we'll press on to the question of being persuaded of God's existence. What we're trying to do so far is clarify the just the meaning of the term God that we're posing. What does it mean to say God exists? And once we put all that together, it perhaps reshapes the imagination of what we're even talking about. And now we can move then to ask, well, what does it mean to be persuaded, <laughs> persuaded that God exists when put in this manner? And so uh, I'll end where most of us begin, weathering how the mind of man can become persuaded of the truth that God exists. The most intuitive answer to this, of course, is that the mind has reasons for believing that God exists. Some foundation which could in principle be converted into arguments for God's existence. And yet precisely this little transition is tricky, even though I just in one sense tried to give such an argument. So one thing to say immediately is that as pointed out previously in this series, God's existence is not clear on the same register and in the same way that other propositions are clear. Uh, for most people, the existence of God can be the kind of item that is in principle doubted, as opposed to many items proposed for belief uh, that we find it actually very difficult to doubt, to go through the experience of doubting, to make ourselves doubt. That'll come up a little bit more in a moment. But even if, the, the, if, if we have reasons presented to our mind to believe in the existence of God, what we think we see when we look at our reasons to believe in God is still often muddled. So, for instance, some minds are persuaded of God's existence for bad reasons. Others state philosophical arguments in very problematic ways, which in their own head function to make them feel persuaded. Uh, this is not to say, however, that such persons are simply deceived. Uh, that can sometimes occur, but most of the time there's their sincere and well-firing firing philosophical intuitions that persons have uh, that they've been trained to kind of deploy in some unhelpful ways that make bad formal arguments. For this reason, contemporary Christians very often read works of apologetics as a sort of spiritual therapy, you might say. <laughs> we all know what it is for some item of our faith to feel somewhat unclear to our mind, and we all have the desire for those propositions to seem clearer in their meaning to us. And so we get one book on the existence of God and it helps, uh, you know, perhaps one's wants to read uh, Ed Feaser's The Last Superstition or his Five Proofs for the Existence of God or Michael Augros, who designed the designer. Uh, suddenly, some of the arguments become clearer to you in terms of their underlying principles and the 
the difficulty of avoiding the existence of God if reality is understood well. Nevertheless, perhaps some fog remains, and so one finds supplement with uh, C.S. Lewis miracles, or maybe even David Bentley Hart's The Experience of God, or Robert Spitzer's New Arguments for the Existence of God, or W. Norris Clark's The Philosophical Approach to God. Perhaps the most adventurous could even consult Stephen R. L. Clark's God, Religion, and Reality. For the discerning, that's my book recommendation list if you want to go read uh, books on the existence of God. Uh, Norris Clark's The Philosophical uh, Approach to God is particularly interesting because he has a thought experiment trying to ask what, you know, what, when we're asking about the existence of God, is it actually easy for God to prove himself the way we would imagine uh, God could prove himself? So, for instance, you know, uh, I said this in my book, Enduring Divine Absence, I give this example of a a young lady talking about how God would just roll back the clouds at three o'clock every day and appear in the sky and say, here I am. Uh, well, wouldn't that make it easier to believe in God? And I think a lot of us intuitively feel like, well, yeah, it would make it easier to believe in God. Uh, and yet, think about that scenario for a second. From a sci-fi perspective, that's something that a transhuman intelligence can do, making a cosmic phantasm in the sky that pulls back, you know, you know, that pulls, you know, that's able to kind of project an image saying, here I am, and do some big magical stuff. Is that God? If we're thinking that that even is God, and that's what proof for God would look like, is that even God? And so what Norris Clark wants to do is to really ask, like, what do you mean it's easy to prove the existence of God or that it should be easy? The moment you're saying that, perhaps what you're doing is you're imagining something that is not actually God and then relating proof to that. But once we define God correctly, or <laughs> that's, that might even be putting it wrong, uh, but, but provisionally we can say that once we define God correctly, we can see that the question of his existence doesn't even, everything in one sense is evidence of his existence, but it doesn't look like that. That's to have a kind of your, your, your philosophical aesthetics unattuned, you might say. So, but nevertheless, uh, one of the ways we, we, we do become persuaded of the existence of God is to find these arguments, calibrate our mind, and to do that, in fact, over and over again. This is a, uh, a spiritual therapy, again, for modern people. We become more persuaded as we read, at least for some sorts of people do. We'll say more about that in a moment. What's happening when we do this, though? We, we, we do not, after all, read book after book about the existence of tables or France or even love, something abstract like love. Apparently, we get something out of reading one book and then another about the existence of God. And I would say that what we get is an increasing habit of mind that sees more and more clearly why it must be the case that God exists. For many of us, this habit is not so firmly placed in our consciousness that it can't be strengthened. Finding new ways to say the argument helps us gain clarified and crafted mental content, and therefore something therefore to which the whole self can be uh, attuned in some way, calibrated in some way. So, so that is to say, e each way of saying the thing <laughs> enacts analogous movements in the mind with slight differences, such that the common trace left in these several journeys of the mind slowly trains the soul to have some natural and fixed hold on the content, something like that. Um, I thought for a while that the importance of developing this habit is particularly prominent, I think, for modern persons who are oriented to the world in ways that obscure God's obviousness, as I've tried to talk about in previous videos. 
Moreover, we can hope that there is some spiritual fruit, I think, to be born from this habit, having such wide distribution among the saints, that, that all of us are doing this at the same time. Perhaps God is up to something in that. There are, of course, associated spiritual risks and temptations, and it's worth ending by recalling that our intellectual journey is always just that. It's on a journey in this life. Prior to the beatific vision, we come to know God by means of creatures operating on our faculties. Our mind can abstract from these phenomena and realize that all of them must have their ground, and so quite literally everything is evidence for the existence of God. However, what is grasped here in the world of creatures is not God as such, but rather his traces as an emir. God cannot be contained, in fact, in our mental content and in our words. This is not because they are too concrete while God is too abstract. Rather, it's we and our words and our concepts who are too wispy, barely held on to by habit and will. And such wispy words and concepts are inadequate to capture the God who is that densest and most particular living one. If this is true of our most exalted of human understanding on this side of the journey, it is especially true of ordinary understanding and even what counts as relatively special among it. And one takeaway from this is that it's not a bug, but rather a feature of being a human that you can potentially look at your understanding of the whole of reality and say, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I failed to factor in such and such. Perhaps it's possible for a human to avoid feeling that way. I'm more confident in saying that most can't arrive at such perfect knowledge so as to render this doubt impossible. For most of us, it remains true that our understanding of the whole and of God relative to it admits of significant qualitative improvement. And this even includes understanding just what it means to say God exists. But again, this is a feature and not a bug. In the Garden of Eden, man existed in a state of innocence, but also in a state of relative ignorance. And you can see this in Lewis's Paralandra, where the green lady, every time she learns something, she says, I'm older now. The tree of wisdom was tempting precisely because the mind of man did not see the future as obvious. Here, like his similar temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, Satan encourages man to agitate about his current unfulfilled appetite and to provide a shortcut to its fulfillment. And as Christ teaches us, the way of God with man is always through dialectic development and history. Christ waits upon God's timing for his dominion, even as he faces the same abyss that Adam could not endure. Adam could not endure, or did not endure, a life without seized wisdom, and neither apparently can we, or do we. In contemporary life, ideology reigns supreme. We insist on having a, a theory of everything, uh, an armchair theory of everything, and agitate greatly at those who imply that the common man can't have an opinion about everything. Of course they can, they have the right to. <laughs> but the truth is perhaps worse that human beings as such uh, natively grope around in the dark. We are probably more ignorant than we could endure fully realizing. 
Perhaps there are some who escape this feeling on a few matters, but for most of us, life will always be full of hunches about things that we do not clearly grasp. That is just what it is to be alive. I'm sorry. <laughs> when it comes to philosophical knowledge of the, exist of the existence of God, philosophical knowledge of the existence of God, this will remain true for many people. Most people can give a fairly decent intuitive argument for God's existence, but could perhaps not formalize it in a way that was argumentatively compelling on paper. For others, the arguments are compelling, but there's a lingering sense that they might be missing something. For, Lee, for these, the problem of evil can be an especially sensitive uh, uh, thing, uh, you know, a sort of slight negation of every possible argument or all of reality for God's existence. The barely grasped transcendental properties you know, shatter against the concrete specificity of unbearable pain or evil. That sound, that haunting sound, you might say, in the neighborhood street outside, as, as George Steiner once put it. Said differently, for those of us who do not see with the mental penetration of Thomas Aquinas, it is likely to be the case that coming to understand the whole is something like an endless exercise of some degree, at least, of deferment. Things don't click together with perfection. There is satisfying intellectual movement and sometimes the feeling of a deeper understanding, but there are always those edges beyond which we don't know what we can't see. And this haunts us because we know what it is like to grow in knowledge and to see everything differently in light of that growth. You know, so we might even compare two stages of knowing and feel like the previous stage was a distorted you know, relative to the qualitative advance of that second stage. And yet, presumably, you know, we're still in that position. Presumably, most of us could undergo some qualitative leap in understanding such that our current understanding, which we now feel so superior to that previous stage, would itself be reduced to a distortion in light of that new qualitative leap. This awareness, the, or the awareness that this is liable to be the case, scares us a little bit, but one might say it need not. Adam sinned in a state of immaturity when confronted with his own abyss of unknowing, his own distance from that final arrival. And we do so through the fig leaves of, of ideology and much else. But on the other side of Jesus, things are different. We have something Adam did not. To be sure, Adam had the entire testimony of creation to encourage his trust in that word, which told him to wait. And this is precisely the significance of Christ's answering Satan by means of appeal to God's trustworthy speech. Against the unknown is the known of God's created order and his speech. But it is finally, one might say, an actual face that human beings are ultimately destined to trust. Many of us feel more certain about our faith because persons and minds whom we trust take it so seriously. But more to the point, out of the abyss has come God with a face. Creatures of unknowing ourselves, Jesus has explained God in the words of John 1. Even if our mind is muddled in its conceptual content, the most precise exegesis of God is simply Jesus himself as he gives himself to us in the Gospels, in the church, and in prayer. God is chiefly the living one. And it is chiefly in a life, you might say, that we see him. God has written himself in the grammar of, of, a, of a human life. 
we can add that we know God precisely to the extent that our lives are shaped after the pattern of that life. We know God precisely to the extent that the, the grammar in which he's written himself into the story of death and resurrection becomes our grammar in our own lives of our death and resurrection, our participation in the death and resurrection. When we become those whose story are taken up into the story of Jesus, walking after him in the spirit of love, we develop the kinds of faces that can see God more clearly as we become him more fully or livingly. And it is here that Jesus as the face of God takes on, I think, a double significance. For, for, for Jesus is not just God's face to man, but man's face to God. Adam faced the abyss of unknowing and took the shortcut. All of us have followed suit. Only Jesus had the fullness of face to endure the abyss, for he fixedly saw and fully entrusted himself to the Father. And he is our face before God and God's face to us. Most profoundly, he is God's face to us precisely in taking on the form of self-giving love and man's face to God precisely for the same reason. As a Christian, it is not at all implausible or surprising to me that many will fail to fully understand the intellectual arguments for God until they see Jesus himself. Jesus as their elder brother and Jesus as their saving Lord. Man's chief problem, after all, isn't that he can't understand arguments. It's that he is sinful and that he doesn't trust God. Perhaps it will be the ordinary experience of persons in our context formed just this way to find restoration to their whole, to the to the wholeness of human personality through the restoration of trust in a person with a face like ours, but the behind the eyes of which is the eternal and infinite living one. That is to say, perhaps we should expect that those who learn to trust God's love for them in Christ will be prone to develop a mind that understands more deeply. The greatest unsettlement of soul remains the experience of being loved by another. In the face of Christ, the soul of man, his full personality, is exposed in the light of God's love. And this is the beginning of the healing of man's mind. Perhaps in this way, Christianity is in fact the servant of philosophy and of all actions that can be inflected through love. And so with that, we end our discussion provisionally of the God question. And what I hope to do in future videos, which should come in a quicker succession, is actually to take shorter outlines and actually perhaps make shorter videos where I can work through the questions that arise or emails I get. But what I want to begin to do is work through other pieces of the Christian faith in addition to the God question in the manner that we work through them here. And so nevertheless, for now, that's all I've got for today. Thanks for joining me again. And I hope you'll come back to join me in this virtual uh, corner of this labyrinth of the internet once again in the future. Thanks and see you later.